This morning, we're going to be jumping back into the book of Luke. So why don't you grab those Bibles if you have them? And if you grab the black hardback Bibles on the ends of the pews, we're going to be in Luke 22, so the page is 1062. So you can open it there. If you've got it on your phone, get that open. Or if you bought your own Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. So I'll give you a couple of moments to turn to Luke. 22, kicking off in verse verse 1. Now, while I was here a couple of weeks ago, I began by talking about my granddad. So I'm going to even it up this morning, and we're going to talk about my grandma for the purposes of introducing where we're headed. Now, me and my grandma had a very different relationship to my granddad and I. Me and my granddad were thick as thieves. We got on. It was great. Me and my grandma, there was a lot of tension. And that was mostly because I grew up being the kind of character, and and I guess I am still to an extent, uh, of just enjoying pushing people's buttons and watching them uh, deal with that. And and my grandma was one of those individuals who I could push her buttons so easily, so easily, and I'd get her wound up. It's really terrible when I look back at that, but I'd just get her wound up, and that meant for some kind of tension between me and her as I grew up. But we loved each other all the same. Now, Now, with my grandma, though, the last few years of her life were really quite sad because she was just well, she was just kind of disintegrated by the disease that is Alzheimer's and it was just really tough to watch and you see with grandma she would start off by just forgetting a few names forget these everyday activities that she could do and then as the disease progressed she would just kind of forget who she was she would forget where she was and she wouldn't remember her loved ones and it was it was a really heart heart-wrenching process to watch now, in the middle of, the, of this, this disease of Alzheimer's, she was put into a home. She just wasn't, she wasn't safe to be living with granddad, and she needed constant observation. And we were going to visit her sometimes. When we visited her, sometimes it would be absolutely hilarious because she would come out with stuff. You just think, how do you make that up? And then other times it would be really, really sad. And I went in one time and chatted with her, and I said, Grandma, how are you doing? And she goes, the staff around here, James, are terrible. Oh, really, Grandma? You better tell me about this. We need, we need to flag this. What's been going on? Well, you want to know what they do in the evenings, James. And I said, yeah, tell me what they do. I need to know this. I need to look after you, Grandma. She said, uh, all the staff, they go fishing. I said, oh, really, Grandma? Well, how do you know? And she goes, well, I've seen all the fishing tackle hidden away in the cupboard. I said, Grandma, I better go chat to them about this. So, so sometimes she would come out with stuff that you just think, how do you make this up? And then other times she would just forget who we were or remember who we were. Now, in the middle of this process for Grandma, what you would see is that some days she would remember who she was. She'd remember her loved ones. She would remember the situation. And when she remembered who she was, she was in for a good day. She was stable. She was secure. She was assured. And she was okay. And then there would be other days where she would forget who she was. She would forget my granddad, she'd forget us, she'd forget where she was, and you knew she was in for a tough day. She would be insecure, unstable, unstable, fragile, and vulnerable. So, so there were days when she would, she would know who she was, and then other days she would forget who she was. And if she knew who she was, she would be stable. And if she forgot who she was, she would be fragile and vulnerable. 
Now, I want to make the case this morning, while we're not in the same place my grandma was, or, or many of our loved ones, we're not in that place. I'm going to want to make the case this morning that we as Christians very often can wake up in the morning and we remember who we are in Jesus Christ. We get it. We know he loves us. We know God loves us because we're in Jesus, that we're claimed by him. And when we remember that, there's a level of untouchability to us. We're secure. We're rooted. We are stable. But then there are other times in our lives when we somehow seem to forget who we are. That we somehow put this identity in Jesus Christ to one side and our speech and our thoughts and our behavior and our lives just seem to take the hit. And when we forget who we are in Jesus, we're fragile, we're vulnerable, and we're unstable. Now, for my grandma, what the staff encourages, encouraged us to do was to put kind of like identity markers around the room. So when she woke up in the morning, we'd put like a picture on her bedside table of us so she could remember, oh, this is who I am. Or we'd put some flowers in the room that she liked or some things from life that she just knew to try and get her to remember who she was because we knew at that stage it would make a big difference to her day. So we knew that if she could have an identity marker, you've got to hear me, if she had an identity marker where she could remember who she was, we knew that the whole day was going to be a bit different. Now here what we're going to find in Luke 22 is that God knows, Jesus knows that we have a habit of forgetting who we are. He knows that. So what Jesus is going to do is provide an identity marker for people like you and us, that when we forget who we are and we feel that instability and we feel that chaos and we feel that life is going into a bit of a tailspin, Jesus says, I'm going to give you something And you're going to remember who you are. It's an identity marker for us. So here's what we're going to be doing this morning. Real, real simple. The first six verses, we're going to set the the backdrop, the scene to the passage. So verses 1 to 6, we're going to set the scene. Then verse 7, we're going to dive headlong right through, almost to uh, halfway through the chapter. And we're going to ask two questions, really simply. What is this identity marker that Jesus gives us? What, What is it? How can we explore this? What do we need to know about it? Second question, why is identity so important? That's real simple. We'll set the backdrop, then we'll ask, what is this identity marker? What is it that Jesus gives us to help us remember who we are? And then why is the issue of identity such a big deal for people like us? So let's set the scene, the first six verses here in Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Now now these previous 21 chapters in Luke, 
Luke has been building a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. What we see in the first 21 chapters of Luke, we see this Messiah given to Israel. This is the hope of the world, recognized by a few, given to a very humble couple. He grows up without sin. And what we see in Luke is that Jesus doesn't go wrong where we go wrong. He doesn't make mistakes where we make mistakes. He isn't unstable and fragile in life's trials like we are. But what we see in Jesus is a strength and a knowledge of who he is. And then what we see in Jesus is that he makes a beeline for the poor. He goes to the nobodies of the world. He goes to the unlovable. He goes to the people who know that the answer isn't within themselves. What we see within Luke, and Jesus states his mission, I have come to bring good news to the poor. I've come to see, I've come to save and to seek the lost. For those people who recognize that they need me, that's who I've come for. And so Luke builds and unravels this beautiful picture of this hoped-for Messiah who is Jesus Christ. And there is absolutely nothing in Jesus' life to incriminate him. He doesn't do a thing wrong. All he does is love. All he does is heal. All he does is show a level of compassion that hasn't been seen before. There is nothing he does wrong. And what do we have? The chief priests, the scribes and the officers wanting to shut him up. And he hasn't done a thing wrong. Why are these guys so bothered about this quiet, humble revolutionary from Galilee. What's the big problem? Well, he's preaching a message that is causing the leaders to lose control. You see what's happening? The chief priests, the religious elite, have a grip on the people. What have they been saying to these people? They've been saying to the people, if you can sort your life out, and if you can sacrifice to us, give us money, give the temple money, And if you can figure out your good behavior, then God will see you as righteous and you'll be acceptable before the Almighty. So what's happening is, is the religious leaders are controlling through fear. They're controlling the people and they have this grip on the people because they haven't. And there steps in this humble man from Galilee who's proclaiming himself to be God himself. Steps in and turns it all on its head and says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not going to be righteous before the Almighty by your own good behavior. You're not going to cut it. You need me, Jesus is saying. I can set you free. Not your good behavior, not your discipline, not your devotion. I've come to set you free. So he turns everything on its head. And we have a panic in the religious leaders. A panic. They're losing control. You know what happens when someone loses control? When someone has a tight grip on something and begins to go? They panic. They can't think straight. They go, they, they, they spin out of control because, and then they start acting irrationally and speaking irrationally because this guy, this Jesus is taking away their control. So you see what they're trying to do? It says it twice. They're trying to catch him away from the people. But how are they going to do that? This guy, Jesus, is always with people. How are they going to get him away? They feared the people. That's what it says. And they want to betray him in the absence of the crowd. How, how do they get away from him? Well, they've got to look for a weak link in the chain. They've got to look for a chink in the armor. They've got to find someone on the inside. So what do they do? They go to Judas Iscariot. And of course, he's willing because he would rather have the money than have Jesus. He would rather have stuff than have Jesus. His heart is consumed with this. So they consort with him and he betrays Jesus. Now, Jesus knows this is about to happen. This is the very purpose for which Jesus came. He's about to pay for sins 
upon the cross. Jesus is about to offer himself up so he can absorb God's judgment. He knows this is coming. This is no surprise to him. And because he knows it's coming, he then gives the disciples the identity marker that they need when he's gone. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 7 here, which gets really interesting. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said, behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you the large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared Passover. Now, this is the night before Jesus is crucified. They are about to do the Last Supper. But Luke doesn't let us miss one very interesting fact that we need to see here. What's this night? It's Passover. Now, I don't know how familiar you might be with the Bible or the broad story of the Bible, but, but the Passover is actually a very significant highlight within the Jewish calendar. Passover is a big meal where people would get together and they would have certain elements to this meal and a process and a script even with the meal that they would go through as families and with their loved ones. And what was the Passover all about? Well, it was to recount and to remember and to make sure they didn't forget the Exodus story. Now, some of you might, you know, you've been in church for a few years, you've grown up in church, you know exactly what I mean when I say Exodus story. But some of you might be like, I, I don't know, what, what do you mean by Exodus story? Well, if we were to go back in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, what we find back there is the Jewish people, hundreds of years before Jesus came, enslaved under the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. So, so this went on for 400 years. Now, the Jews had, had, had recognized that God was their God and they were God's people. And for 400 years, they had been crying out. They had been yearning, longing for freedom from this slavery. We want to be set free. So for 400 years, crying out, their, their, backs, their backs were broken. They were beaten down. They were worn down. They've been in slavery for 400 years. Lord, will you remember us and deliver us from slavery? And Lord, here's, the Lord hears their cry. And he raises up Moses and his brother Aaron. And, and some of you are going to know the story quite well, but they end up standing before Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And there's that famous phrase, let my people go. But we know the Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? And he said, no, no, I'm going to keep you guys. You're the slaves of our nation. You're propping up our economy. We're not going to let you go. All right, then. So God ends up sending a plague. Starts off with the water turning to blood. Then Moses and Aaron, let, let my people go, set us free. No, no. And then there's more plagues. Ten of these plagues, in fact. But Pharaoh's not listening. Pharaoh's not letting them go. He's not releasing these Jews from slavery. And then God brings the worst plague of the lot to just really break Pharaoh to pieces and break his resolve. So keep your finger in Luke chapter 22. Let's turn back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, and I want to read from verse 21. This is the last plague 
And it's called the Passover. The Passover. So look at Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read from verse 21. This is Passover. Give you a moment or two to hear those pages. Exodus 12, kicking off in verse 21. And then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a branch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel of the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to st- houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. So you see what happens in this final plague. This is the one that breaks Pharaoh's resolve. And what happens is the firstborn sons are taken unless this lamb's blood is pasted on the lintel and the doorposts of the doorway. So Passover was something that the Jews did to remember this. Because what happens is the Passover comes, lives are lost, and Pharaoh cries out, look, I'm done with this. You Jews get out of here. Go back to the land that God has promised you. Just clear off. And we know the famous story, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness to 40 years, and then back to their land. So what was going on in the Passover? God heard their cry, and by the blood of the Lamb, they were spared from death. So that's what Passover is about. God rescued them. He redeemed them. He delivered them. By the blood of the Lamb, these people were not going to face the death that everyone else in Egypt faced. So they were rescued. Now, the Jews are then told to do this every single year. Get together, Jewish people. Get together with your families. Get together with your loved ones and have a meal. And as you have this meal, make sure you remember all of the details. Why? Because you have a habit of forgetting. Because you have a habit of forgetting who you are and what God has done for you. And you can get lost and you can feel vulnerable and fragile and you can forget who you are. Come back and remember this is who you are. So the identity marker right here, hear that? The identity marker for the Jewish people was Passover. Remember how the blood of the Lamb set you free. Now, go back to Luke 22. Jesus is a good Jewish man, a perfect Jewish man. And he's surrounded by good Jewish disciples. So they're doing Passover. They're remembering the Exodus story. Jump back in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that I will, tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Really what he's saying is when I come back. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. But look what's going on. Look what's going on in this upper room. These good Jewish guys are getting together as loved ones, as a family, to celebrate the Passover. That they were spared death as a Jewish nation because of the blood of the Lamb over the doorposts of their house. Jesus takes this identity marker of Passover, flips it on its head, and then gives it to his disciples and to people like you and me and the last 2,000 years of church history. What's Jesus just done? He's taken an identity marker, he's reframed it, and he says, ah, there's a new exodus taking place. Tomorrow on the cross, and three days later, when I rise again from the dead, my suffering... I am going to be the lamb that's going to be laid down. My blood is going to be shed and my blood will be pasted to the doorway of your house and death is no longer for you. Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is a new exodus. This is a better exodus. This is a more cosmic exodus. This is one for individuals like you and me. This is a new exodus to which the first one was pointing to. I'm going to be laid down. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the lamb. You see, as they're doing Passover, they've got all these different things on the table. They've got different cups of wine to remember the story. They've got bitter herbs to eat that would remind them of slavery. There's bread, there's different dishes. So really what he's doing is just taking a couple of elements from this meal that they know so well and saying, let me tell you about this new story, this new covenant, a different way how God is going to relate to people. This is going to be through grace. It's going to be by me. And I'm going to lay myself down and the blood of the lamb is going to set you free. So there's the answer to our first question. What is this identity marker? Well, it's right there on the table. It's the Lord's Supper. The church has been doing it since this point for the last 2,000 years. Okay, next question. Why is identity so important? Why is remembering who you are so key? I mean, why? Why this? I mean, if that's what it is, that's the identity marker. The big question is, why? Well, I think the, the easy answer here is to say, look, as human beings, we all know this to be true. We are incessantly and hopelessly creatures that are always asking the question, who am I? I, I think, I think we, as, as kids, when, when, when we're born and we grow up and we start getting a comprehension for the world around us, you watch your own kids, you watch the kids in the, in the kids groups here at BRBC. We are creatures that are constantly asking the question, who am I? Now, of course, the questions of who am I surface in all different areas of life, but really there's a subconscious underlying narrative story or conversation that's going on within every single human being in here. And we're asking the question, who am I? And we're going outside of ourselves to find answers to that. Now, I'm not really answering the question here. Why is identity so important? Well, the trouble is, As human beings, we have a propensity, we have a desire to find answers outside of ourselves, but what we end up doing is finding the answer to the question, who am I, in all of the wrong places. On things that aren't stable, on things that aren't rooted, on things that don't have a foundation. And what happens when we place the answer to the question, who am I, on something that isn't stable, then we ourselves are left fragile insecure, and ourselves unstable. Now, I, I was reading Tim Keller's book while we were away in Kenya called Making Sense of God. It's, it's kind of like an address to the skeptics of New York City. So it's, it's pretty dense and philosophical, but it gives these two chapters in the middle on identity. 
And these are spectacular chapters. Go ahead and read them if you can get a hold of that book. But in these chapters, he talks about identity. What do I mean by that? The question, who am I? How do I define myself? What is self? How do I relate? What defines me in the world around me? And what Tim Keller does is he gives three, he kind of categorizes identity into three areas. He says, well, you can have a traditional identity, you can have a modern identity, or you can have a Christian identity. So I'm going to go through these and bring it all back together, and hopefully this will make sense in a few moments' time. So let's just go through these different types of identity, traditional, modern, and Christian. Now, traditional identity is probably what most people would have had before World War II. So this is kind of a historic way of understanding ourselves. And what defines traditional identity? Well, the self was defined by the roles we play in the community. So I can see this hugely in my grandparents' lives when they were alive, that they were defined by what people around them told them they were. So granddad left school at 14, and his dad said, right, you've got op- your opportunities are you work in a factory, you become a builder, or you go work on the farm. So he was defined by the world around him. Grandma, well, you can work in a factory or you can be a cleaner. That's traditional identity. Now, as I knew them, they were defined, obviously so, by everyone else around them. So so even down to the type of flowers they would have in their front garden and, and how perfect the lawn was. Was it because they liked it? No, but it's because everyone else did it. Everyone else on the street had the same stuff. So we will be dictated by who they say we should be. So they're defined by their roles in society. Now, what happens in that identity is that we give an incredible weight to how everyone else defines us. In fact, I look at my grandparents. They were constrained, almost strangled, by what other people said about them. And that's what dictated their lives. What will they say? What, what will they say? What would, what, what, would, what would he say? What would she say about us if we did that? We better not. We better not stick our heads above everyone else. Let's just keep the cool. Let's just stay the same as everyone else. So a traditional identity is captive to what other people say you are. So, so you're, you're constrained to how people say. Maybe you recognize that in your own life somewhat. Maybe you've experienced it within a church. You don't raise your head above anyone else. You don't show vulnerability. You don't make yourself to be a somebody. You don't go above and beyond. You just keep the status quo. Because if you do, they're going to say something terrible about you. And if they say something terrible about you, you're going to lose your very sense of self. So the traditional identity is guided by what other people say about you. What about the modern identity? Well, the modern identity, Tim Keller says, is the complete opposite. So instead of going outside to have a definition of self, it's going inside for a definition of self. I'm not what they tell me. I'm not what they tell me I am. I'm not going to give in to the social norms. I'm going to be me because I feel this within me. I sense that I should be a somebody, that I should aim higher, that I should use everyone else's stepping stones to realize who I can be. I am going to be a somebody in my life. Perhaps I can quote a a, a modern-day sage on this, a Norwegian woman. She's the queen of Arendelle. You might recognize this. This is the modern identity. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. 
and the fears that once controlled me can't get me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. Now that's a modern identity. Forget what people say about me. I don't give a rip what they say. I'm going to be me. But the thing is, in this identity, you're not building your identity on something's outside of yourself. You're building your identity on your own achievements, on your own opportunities, on your, I can be a somebody. But what happens is, is that life is fickle. Life can't be planned. We don't know what's around the next corner. So when something is taken away, you don't actually lose that thing. You lose your very sense of self. So, so what we find is that, the, that I can be a somebody internal and I'm dictated by what they say about me. So the traditional and the modern, both of these identities leave us fragile, leave us unstable, leave us insecure. Why? Because both of these enti- identities are about achieving. Both of these questions, who am I, is about achievement. Well, I'm working hard to make sure they don't say something bad about me because if I do, I'm going to lose value, I'm going to lose worth, and I'll be a nobody. So I need to save face. And then this one is, well, I'll build my identity here, here, and here. But of course, if it's taken away, we lose our very sense of who we are. Both of these are fragile. So what's the alternative? Traditional, modern, or what Jesus offers? Now, what Jesus is doing in the upper room, what he's doing with this Passover is he's providing an identity marker. What's he saying? You don't have to achieve this anymore. You don't have to be captive by what people say. And you don't have to try and be a somebody because likely you're not going to be one. And you're going to fail and it's going to be hard and the world's going to hit you and you're going to lose your very sense of self if you go that way and this way. You can't achieve this. Here's the difference what Jesus is offering in the Christian identity. It's not achieved. The Christian identity is received. And it's identity that's not going to be lost. It's an identity that can't be tampered with. And it's an identity that won't be taken away. So what's the difference? You can build your life on something that isn't going to dissolve, that isn't going to leave you spinning out of control and not knowing who you are. The Christian identity is one that's received. So what's going on in the upper room? Jesus is transforming this identity marker of Passover to say, saints, disciples, church, this is who you are. Here's my body. Here's my blood. It's going to be broken and spilt for you. And I am going to claim you as my own. And if only you would receive this and stop trying to achieve it. You're not bound by what they say. And you're not bound by the desires that you can't meet inside of yourself. Jesus says, this is why my message is so counterintuitive. Because it's something that's received. This is who you are, saint. Now, now this last week, we were at West Special School. I know some of you have read the email we wrote from Kenya and said, it was a good trip, but there's some sad times in there too. And there really was a couple of, couple of scary and sad moments. Now, the school's doing really well. They're growing, they're developing, they're taking initiative, and it's great. Really good to see the best place the school's ever been in. But we we left here two Sundays ago. We jumped on a plane at five o'clock on Sunday afternoon to Nairobi. We landed in Nairobi, so tired, five in the morning, got in a minibus, and we just got into the suburbs of Nairobi and hit a traffic jam. Now, it turns out that it was a politically kind of organized traffic jam, and a mob kind of came through. The, the traffic jam were letting down everyone's tires. One of the top three scariest moments in my life when our minibus was surrounded and shaken by these political 
wannabe activist right there. So we were absolutely exhausted by the time we got to West. It took an extra day because of this traffic jam. So on Wednesday morning, we got there. So I shuffled out of my room, met by a panicking face of Evelyn. Now, Evelyn's the founder of West Special School. She's the heartbeat. She's the lady who makes it happen. And she says, James, bad news. And you know, Maria, she hasn't been very well. She's a 16-year-old girl. She's about the was about the size of a six-year-old. She was severely disabled, and she hadn't been doing very well. She said, uh, we've got to run down to the clinic. Maria stopped breathing. Oh, what? So I threw on my jacket, put my phone and wallet, and we just sprinted. And I said, where is she? Well, some teachers have already run down with her. She, Evelyn was frantic. She couldn't kind of keep it together, because she's a mother, really, to these 65 kids or so. And when we got to the clinic, she said, uh, uh, James, bad news. It looks like the other teachers and the doctor came out and said, Maria's stopped breathing. There's no pulse. She's dead. And we said, uh, oh, uh, Evelyn said, um, I'm not going to accept that. Can we go see another clinic? And she's like a mother, just, just frantically wanting to get a second opinion. Can we save this child's life? I knew we couldn't. So we wrapped her up in a, in a blanket that was made for someone, made by someone here at BRBC and took her in a taxi to another clinic and, of course, received the death certificate. It was a pretty somber morning at West Special School and I never really experienced it quite like that. A couple of days later, we were doing an interview with Evelyn. Now, see where Evelyn is. She, she is dealing with children that the rest of society doesn't want. She's dealing with the nobodies. And we said to her, Evelyn, we did these interviews, you'll see it in a couple of weeks. I said, Evelyn, why do you do West Special School? Why do you do this? And I expected to give her, her this long political philosophical answer. But she just kind of cocked her head slightly and a very quizzical look said, because I'm born again. Oh. And then a penny dropped in my mind. I was like, of course that's why. Of, of course that's why. You see, if she was living out a traditional identity, she would listen to what the rest of the community says. Leave these kids alone. Okay, I'll listen. Everybody else defines me. I won't do that. If she was living a modern identity, she would have to become a somebody. And to become a somebody, you don't spend time with those people who can't pay back on your investment. You don't spend time with the unlovable. But she had a Christian identity. And she'll often say, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. I know who he is. And that gives me a stability to face what people say. And to face these desires, the unmet desires within me to be a somebody, it frees me from that. And I find a stability and a security and an assurance in knowing who I am in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is giving us communion, to remind us, our forgetful selves, this is who you are. You need to hear me this morning, Christian. You've got to hear me. You are not defined by what people have said about you. You are not defined by the harsh comments. You're not defined by the critic. You're not defined by the people who told you you'd never amount to anything and you're worth nothing. You're not defined by that. You're not defined by the desire within you who says you need to be a somebody. And if that thing is taken away from you, then you lose your very sense of self. You're not defined by that. Christian, you're defined by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You're a saint. You're redeemed. You're valued by the Almighty Himself. You're loved with an adoration and a delight and a joy that you can't find in this world. This is who you are. 
So Jesus is providing his disciples with an identity marker. Why? Because people like you and me forget. We forget who we are. We get fragile. We get insecure. We place the answer to who am I on the wrong stuff. Jesus says, I'll tell you who you are. Come and remember. Come and receive. Come and see who you really are. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion ourselves. So let's pray, shall we? Lord, we are staggered that you would love people like us. People who get it wrong. People who go down the wrong roads. Messy lives. We're imperfect, but you love us. And you've given us the Lord's Supper to remind us that you do love us. That you want to know us. That you're jealous for us. That your love for us is so enormous, so personal and so intimate that it makes us feel uncomfortable at times. But Lord, would you help us this morning to see who we are in Jesus Christ. Amen.